is a special one-hour broadcast of Socolo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Socolo, which means public square in Spanish, is dedicated to fostering greater intellectual and cultural fellowship across ethnic, racial, and partisan lines. Tonight's program features poet and essayist D.J. Waldy discussing his love affair with Los Angeles, city and county, her inhabitants, neighborhoods, geography, and history. In a city that retails itself to the world, belief comes easy. Faithfulness, however, is more elusive for Angelinos. Waldy, author of Where Are We Now?, Notes from Los Angeles, and Holy Land, explores the fate and faith of the city and region. Tom Kerwin, editor of the Outdoor section of the L.A. Times and former deputy editor of the paper's book review, introduces tonight's guest. Sokolo is proud to present an evening with D.J. Waldy, City of Angels, City of Faith. Good evening. How nice it is to see you here tonight for this wonderful event. Um, Don is a good friend, so it's a great honor for me to introduce him here. Flying into Los Angeles is an intriguingly and decidedly 20th century experience. From afar, the city spreads out for miles in a seemingly random pattern, and only as the ground lifts up to slowly meet the plain do we begin to see the crisscrossing of the streets, the homes pressed up against one another, the schools, the parks, and the churches. Many writers have attempted to decipher this pattern. Many writers have told us what Los Angeles means, but few contemporary writers have brought such a unique intelligence and humanism to the task as Don Waldy. Now, I'd be surprised if many of you out there do not know or do not know of Don Waldy and his work, which makes my job here rather easy. You could read from Kevin Starr's Coast of Dreams, the latest book in his, his mammoth project, which has nearly a chapter devoted to Don's vision of the city. Or I could cite some of Don's more eclectic readings here and about. I remember one occasion where he held the stage with Sandra Singh Lowe at the Festival of Books. He was also on this stage, I believe, speaking with Dave Alvin um, of the Blasters. And most recently, he was over at the Getty doing a spoken word performance of sorts with the music of John Cage and Harry Parch. Or I could read from the considerable body of social criticism and the writing that Don has written for the Times and for other publications, most recently anthologized in a wonderful book, Where We Are Now, Notes from Los Angeles. But I won't do any of that. Instead, I'd like to take you back to 1996. At the time, I was a reviewer for People magazine. I know it may seem like an oxymoron, but it wasn't. I was combing through publishers weekly, looking, as they say, for something to read. And I came upon, in their blurbs in the nonfiction, a wonderful book called Holy Land, a suburban memoir, set in all places as I was reading, and I couldn't believe it, Lakewood. This certainly caught my attention. It had long been my complaint that this city, with its writers and all its writers and all its writings, was mostly West Side-centric. Could this be a book, I'd thought, that would cover the part of the city that I cared about, where I live, which is in Long Beach and the Southeast Corridor? And, and was this book actually being written by a city official? I couldn't believe it. It was all of the above. Holy Land today is everything that Dawn is, original, brilliant, surprising, and lovingly grounded. Here is a book that defies any easy criticism of the post-war suburban experience. Here is a book that looks at Los Angeles and the vastly undiscovered Southeast in an unsentimental light 
without apology or scorn. Here is a book that more than any that I know explains what is at stake in this landscape in its lives, to borrow from Don's words, of the not-quite-middle-class men and women. Our knowledge and our consideration of Los Angeles, I argue, is richer for Holy Land. And most interestingly, and most importantly, here is a book that considers the spiritual dimension of our everyday lives in a suburban context. Remember its ending? It's Good Friday, and Don, in one of the most amazing associations of the book, connects the wood that went into the construction of these homes, his home in Lakewood, with the wood of the cross. It's an amazing moment. Holy Land has the temerity to suggest in a landscape often dismissed for being a godless wasteland, there is a spiritual dimension. And today, if we find ourselves wondering whether this observation is surprising or obvious, we should thank Don for having written Holy Land and opening this debate. City of Angels, City of Faith. Without further ado, the most gifted city official that I know, Don Waldy. Thank you very much. At the end of the movie Chinatown, at the end of all the false leads that Jake has doggedly run down, at the end of our patience with Jake's mistaken convictions about himself and his city, when Jake's partner pulls him back from the sight of Evelyn Mulray's shattered face and the Asian faces of the gawking bystanders crowd the frame, when the clueless private eye is told, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. In the end, the story of Los Angeles has dwindled to a conclusion we are powerless to affect, like a landscape watched in the rearview mirror of a car fleeing a crime scene. At the end of our story, this is Chinatown, only Chinatown, and we're only along for the ride. As Joan Didion has said, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. In Los Angeles, we tell ourselves that an elderly John Houston stole the water of the Owens Valley in 1934, just as Chinatown proved, although that wasn't the way it actually happened. We tell ourselves that a cartoon Dr. Doom and General Motors uh, shut down the beloved red cars to make way for the freeways, just as Who Framed Roger Rabbit showed, although that isn't exactly true either. Because we've seen True Confessions and L.A. Confidential, uh, Lost Highway and Blade Runner, we are certain we know what Los Angeles is. Any reasonably intelligent American knows say the authors of the satiric guide, L.A. Bizarro, that Los Angeles is a rotten, stinking dump. You and I can recite the city's defeated beliefs about itself like a catechism for the regretful. What is Los Angeles? Los Angeles, for those lucky enough to get out, is a rite of passage and a fable of broken dreams. William A. McClung writes in Landscapes of Desire that the fable of Los Angeles of illusions bought and expectations disappointed is a moving, entertaining, and stylish story of a peculiar city reached by a long journey, enjoyed, railed against, and ultimately rejected for all that it lacks. An absurd place whose climate, geography, and architecture, even its landscape, 
are contemptibly insubstantial, yet perversely resilient. These highly charged images compose what French geographer Jérôme Monet calls vernacular geography, our internal fallible map we mistakenly consult instead of a Thomas guide. The uniform urban grid of Los Angeles, which should be seen as a spectacle of democracy, leaves too many of us bewildered. We can't see past the iconography of sunshine and noir that conceals everyday Los Angeles. There in the shadow of the glowing billboard that advertises this city and its desires is the place that too many of us regard as alien, troubling, menacing, and cut off. We made our narratives for the freeway's fluidity, but that's mostly gone now anyway, and our stories get lost in brown neighborhoods on the city's flatlands and break down in cul-de-sacs and many, among many malls that all look alike, with signs written in characters that are meaningful only to someone else. But for the gridlock, a lot of us would prefer to be passing through Los Angeles, where we are perpetual tourists and never citizens on our way to newer and brighter suburbs in Montana or Las Vegas, or to internal exile behind the gates of a guarded subdivision, or behind one of those little signs that reads, immediate armed response. Perhaps as historian Dana Cuff has suggested, the city's hyper self-definition has made it difficult to see the texture beneath the ephemeral surfaces. Those surfaces are, in Cuff's apt phrase, convulsive, a landscape twitching with big ideas about building the next utopia here on the demolished premises of the last one. What's broken in each convulsion isn't just ground. It's a thread of narrative. And it's those broken threads that make too many of us homeless in Los Angeles, even if we have a house. The search for a usable history of Los Angeles and everyday history troubled this city a hundred years ago. How do we become indigenous to this place? The anxious new Anglo residents of Los Angeles asked at the turn of the century. They were acutely aware they lacked a story that would fit their American city into an unfamiliar landscape and one so recently appropriated from its Mexicano and California proprietors. They answered what they lacked with a pageant, a history lesson on wheels, drawn on wagons through the few big streets of the city. As William Deverell describes it in Whitewashed Adobe, the story of Los Angeles was going to be a parade with floats, La Fiesta de Los Angeles. The lead floats in the 1895 edition of the parade illustrated Aztec daily life, followed by imported Native Americans enacting an Indian raiding party, then a float of mission padres bringing Western civilization, and then in further slow procession, floats showing a, a typical scene of the sleepy Mexican town of the 1820s, a romantic scene from the era of the ranchos, and Sutter's discovery of gold in 1849. The parade marshaled a story of replacement. In each era, from the most distant to the present, one people supplanted another in Los Angeles until both the parade and history ended with the triumphant Anglo city and its timeless landscape. Interspersed among the floats were the other Angelenos, 
among them a team of Chinese dragon dancers from Marysville, whose presence in the parade was both fascinatingly exotic and deeply troubling to Anglo spectators. The parade that year concluded with a final float, an allegory of the future. It promised that Los Angeles would be the culmination of Caucasian civilization in the land of sunshine, with all of nature and all of human industry in harmony. The harmony shattered almost at once, and the bickering began over the point of the story. The mission padres were found to be Catholic, of all things, and agents of Roman superstition, at least according to the sterner elements of the Protestant community. Those dancing Chinese and sullen Indians weren't officially part of the American story anyway, even if the pageant clearly showed them in their subordinate status. And the dashing caballeros on parade day, didn't they become just Mexicans the day after? In 1898, the Spanish-American War made it impossible to script a past that included a place for Spanish conquistadors. In 1902, the Latino descendants of the Lugos and the Yorbas threatened to pull out and leave the parade without living proof of Anglo history, the replacement of one people by another. The fiesta sputtered out in these unresolved plot lines and waning interest. The Tournament of Roses in Pasadena flourished, however, perhaps because the Pasadena parade wasn't a story, but only an opportunity for looking at pretty flowers and pretty girls. Maybe the fiesta's organizing principle of history, a ser series of substitutions, implied that the final float wouldn't always end the story with Caucasian triumph, and that the Anglo supplanters standing on the sidewalk might themselves one day ride in a slow-moving historical tableau for even newer inheritors of the landscape. Perhaps most troubling of all was the burden of ha having any history at all. The parade spectacle of historical succession came with the presumption that the city's past wasn't safely in the past, but was ready to break into the present and make historical claims that Anglo Los Angeles refused to understand. The attempt to create a coherent story of Los Angeles had failed at its beginning. Because of the region's Catholic past, its capture in war and fears of Mexican irredentism, its dread of race mixing, its speculative cycles of boom and bust, and the seductive power of its extravagant sales pitch, the white city turned away from living memory and cast the shadow that remains the city's noir double, the city of unmet desires, the city of willful amnesia, the disillusioned city that naively buys its own illusions, the city embodied in Phyllis Dietrichson's house in double indemnity, sunny and phony on the outside and dark inside, a house for plotting a murder masked as a seduction. We buy so cheaply in Los Angeles and believe so easily. Just take your pick of scriptures. The story of Los Angeles is an elegy for a place of former perfection, a perfect place once upon a time and the time was just before your new next-door neighbor arrived. <laughs> That's our history of regret. Or the story of Los Angeles is a kind of pornography in which every real estate cliché is a menace. The city's climate is actually lousy, tornadoes today and drought tomorrow. And the landscape is lethal when it isn't burning with wildfires or shaking with earthquakes, 
It's crawling with fauna with a taste for suburban white meat. In its contempt for its subject, in its belief that we're along just for the ride, that story is our pornography of despair. Or the story of Los Angeles is merely a spectacle of this uniquely intoxicated place and its intoxicated people. The splendors and miseries of Los Angeles, Rainer Banham says in Los Angeles, the architecture of four ecologies, the graces of its grotesqueries appear to me as unrepeatable as they are unprecedented. If Los Angeles is the great exception, a city without a heritage or legacy, marooned off the continent of the commonplace, then its story may be glamorous, but it's just another entertainment, best witnessed while slightly sedated. <laughs> or the story of Los Angeles is permanently a blank. As Pico Iyer says, a space waiting to be claimed by whatever dream or destiny you wanted to throw at it. That's our daydream of all our cities of the future, leaving the now of Los Angeles stranded as a locale of everything that is unsatisfying and incomplete. Or finally, there is no story of Los Angeles at all. The city has simply disappeared from the narrative, a victim of the regime of speed and erased by forgetfulness. Los Angeles, Los Angeles, colonial city, captured city, city of fragments, city of edges, city of amnesiacs, anxious city. The poet Wanda Coleman calls it the cruelest city. This city of angels, of thoughtless belief and so little faith in itself. Because none of these cities satisfies our longing, many of its citizens believe Los Angeles has one last title, unnecessary city. Pity them, and pity the metropolis they think is unnecessary. Cities are not mere conveyances of public services. They have a moral purpose. The moral purpose of a great city is to shelter a maximal diversity of public settings in which citizens might acquire the ability to sympathize with the condition of others and to act on those conditions by communal and political means. A hundred years ago, Anglo residents of the city asked how they could become the inheritors of their unearned place, and they figured a story that satisfied no one. Today, some Anhelenos are answering a question posed by the writer and environmentalist Barry Lopez, who grew up in the San Fernando Valley. Barry Lopez asks, how can we become vulnerable to this place? It's a question of falling in love. I fell in love with Los Angeles through its history, and you could too. This is a golden age of great writing about the city and its region, mostly in the form of critical studies, but also, if that seems too academic, in the form of memoir and new fiction and literary nonfiction. A grid of stories is under construction in Los Angeles. My story appropriating some of yours. Yours taking from the Korean woman who handles your dry cleaning. Hers from the Oaxacan who sells her fresh fruit. And his acquired in part from the Alabaman who sits next to him on the overcrowded metro bus. A commitment to the shared stories of all these Angelenos, a commitment the city has always lacked, is a prerequisite for loyalty to this place. 
I believe Anhelenos have something profound to tell each other. They also have a lot to forgive. Demographically and culturally, Los Angeles in 2004 is nearly a refounded city, and like recently refounded nations, Los Angeles can acquiesce to its malign tradition of forgetfulness or benefit from a shared process of truth and reconciliation. Remembering is an act of courage in Los Angeles. Memory is sabotage against the city's regime of speed. So Barry Lopez asks, how can we become vulnerable to Los Angeles? His question can only be answered by those who have acquired a sense of place. Some Anhelenos are finding a sense of place in the most unlikely of places. Downtown, for one, where the blank city of courts described by historian Mike Davis is acquiring a human, if gentrified, face. Call it noir adjacent <laughs> for a niche market of hipsters. But also, but also, the return of a neighborhood economy to streets that an earlier wave of redevelopment had stripped of everyday life. The Los Angeles River is another place of memory, where, as the historian Jennifer Price has noted, the city's environmental story comes almost full circle, from wild nature to industrial wasteland to restoration, if not exactly to nature. The banks of Los Angeles River are getting crowded. The Santa Monica Mountains Conservancy, the Mountains Recreation and Conservation Authority, and the Trust for Public Land have completed a chain of small parks along stretches of the river. Northeast Trees is part of the project and is planting nearly 3,000 trees. Tree people are planting more. The 52-mile Los Angeles River Greenway project linking the river, New State Parks, and the Arroyo Seco with bike and walking trails is moving forward. A project for Los Angeles Heritage Trail connecting all these sites and more than a dozen other places of memory in downtown Los Angeles and East Los Angeles is being vigorously advocated, as is a confluence park at the juncture of the river and the Arroyo Seco. The green dots are being connected. The largest of these open space projects is a pair of urban parks reclaimed from former rail yards that will give Chinatown a 32-acre park a few hundred feet from the river. Two miles upstream is a 30-acre state park that could grow to 100 acres of trails, playing fields, and a wetlands restoration project. Building parks on industrial brownfields won't restore a lost Eden to Los Angeles. The river will always be a flood control channel, constrained by concrete to protect working-class homes like mine. The slow greening of the river is a sobering demonstration of the limits of environmental restoration in an urban landscape, but it's also a demonstration of how perilously fragmented LA can pull itself together. As Jennifer Price notes, the river is at once one of the most hopeless and hopeful spots in Los Angeles. In the words of the old hymn, we shall gather at the river because we have almost nowhere else to go in built-out Los Angeles. We shall gather on the river's banks to restore it, not to nature, but to ourselves. So how do we become vulnerable to this place? Hunger for memory is one way. Take delight in the city's stories. Find yourself in its history. Long for a sense of place. Fall in love. But what would... It, what would um, inspire your allegiance to Los Angeles? What would inspire your allegiance? 
Our indifference to that question feeds on 80 years of technically good government in Los Angeles based on professional expertise and public disinterest. It's based, it's based on 30 years of timidity by the city's mayors and council members who countenance the spirit of secession to get secessionist votes. And it's grounded on a generation of Prop 13-inspired taxpayer revolts against the idea of a common good. Those revolts cruelly remade, cruelly remade the citizens of Los Angeles into mere consumers of municipal services. This city, I believe, has failed to give its residents what they critically need, reasons to be faithful to each other that go beyond the politics of shared grievances. The city has not inspired faithfulness because it has not offered much that stood against the easy belief that no shared loyalties are possible at all. But even that is changing. Los Angeles is in the midst of a half-finished political revolution that began with the city charter reform in 1999. Rather than break the political geography of the city into pieces, which was a very real possibility in 2002, Los Angeles voters broke power in the city into new configurations, including the system of neighborhood councils and area planning commissions. Those were compromise choices, more radical changes, including a much larger city council where a system of boroughs weren't put before the voters. Some of the early results of the reform charter have been unruly and easy to misread as the old bickering in new settings. But something alive is breaking through the dead mask of the city's unaccountable system of governance. Members of the neighborhood councils say they feel empowered, that they have access where they didn't before. They have been included in drafting the city budget. They rose up against the technocracy of the DWP and won a remarkable, if symbolic, victory. That's a start for creating genuine stakeholders in the city who might acquire over time the vision to see Los Angeles whole. More should be done. The city spends just $2 per resident in support of neighborhood councils. Seattle, Portland, and Minneapolis spend from $13 to $20 per resident. The city doesn't do enough to coordinate the flow of information to the councils. The councils are not structurally linked to the area planning commissions or to each other. And if only elementary and middle schools could be governed as neighborhood institutions. But despite the flaws, a revolution of popular desire is unfolding in Los Angeles to reanimate the dry husk of city government with hope. Analeño's hope for a community of solidarity where their diverse interests might be reconciled in ways that satisfy them intimately and in reconciling them promote the common good. Marjorie Gellhorn Saadez's prose poem, Only Heaven, is about Broadway's Mercado of Dreams, the free advice of a verdurous vendor, the one-man band who plays on tin cans tacked to his belt, and a hundred girls on their way to try on a hundred shiny wedding dresses. Down here, Gelhorn Saade writes, it's hope on parade. That hope is brown. To use Richard Rodriguez's color of complicity, hybridity, and admixture, that hope is brown. There's another word for this city story, 
just beyond the gated suburb. It's mestizaje, the promiscuous amalgamation of Hispanic, African, Asian, and Native American peoples that is characteristic of a mestizo civilization, our civilization. Brown doesn't mean just a Latino demographic majority, but a weaving together of Manila, Lagos, Bakersfield, Ho Chi Minh City, New York, Tenochtitlan, Tehran, Phnom Penh, and Long Beach. Not a place of exclusion and exception and illusion, but of the commonplace, the place where we necessarily find love and hope. We are not yet vulnerable to that Los Angeles, and too many of us cannot embrace the consequences of seeing our whiteness as another shade of brown. Wes Jackson, the founder of the Land Institute, insisted that Americans had not yet become native to their country. For Analeños, becoming fully native to this place will require a fearful transformation because it requires that we become a mixed breed, a creole of colors and new allegiances of the heart. I've asked you tonight to consider how you and I might gain what could be called a moral imagination, the means to write ourselves into the story of this city in its redemptive mix of tragedies and joys. Something genuine and encumbered could come from the process of making such an imagination, a refigured story that contains more about us, what we find familiar, and what we yearn for. It's not Roman Polanski's Chinatown. We yearn for home, at least some of us do. Los Angeles is a ruined paradise, I agree, and in desperate need of us. It is the fate of Los Angeles, I almost said the grace of Los Angeles, to be the paradise we've ruined, and as a consequence, now, our home. Thank you. This is a special hour-long broadcast of Sokolo on 89.3 KPCC. Stay tuned. When we return, Mr. Waldy answers questions from the audience on a wide variety of subjects, ranging from snake oil salesmen to the upcoming L.A. mayor's race.